It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, and welcome to the Growth Up podcast brought to you by SaaS marketing agency, Advanced B2B. It's your host here, Edward Ford, and today we are joined by April Dunford, an expert on market strategy and all things positioning. Now, in this episode, we dig into a super important topic for all SaaS companies, and that is indeed positioning, and there are few people who know as much about this as April. So over the course of her career, April has launched 16 products to market. She's held multiple executive roles in SaaS, including CEO, COO, VP of Marketing and Sales. And she's had successful exits, including the acquisition of Jana Systems to Siebel for 1.3 billion US dollars. And in addition to that, she's also writing a book on positioning that will launch in spring 2019 called Obviously Awesome. Now, in this episode, we explore the world of positioning and what it means to SaaS companies, including what it actually is and the factors that impact and influence your positioning, a step-by-step walkthrough of a positioning framework that you can use to help ensure you reach the right positioning for your product, how you can use positioning to stand out in noisy, crowded markets, the role of positioning as part of your category strategy, and we hear some real-life stories of positioning challenges April has faced throughout her career, and in addition, we also get a sneak peek into April's book and what we can expect when it launches. Now, this is a pretty actionable episode, so make sure you grab a pen and paper to take some notes. And of course, stay tuned to the end of the episode where April takes on our Fast Five Challenge. So here is episode number 30 of the Growth Hub Podcast with April Dunford. Welcome to another episode of the Growth Hub Podcast, and it is my pleasure to welcome market strategy and positioning expert April Dunford to the show. So April, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been super excited about this episode ever since we had a great chat at Sastock in Dublin about many things, including brand marketing and category strategy, as well as positioning, which is what we're focusing on today. So to kick things off, though, I was thinking, could you tell us what actually is positioning? Yeah, so you know what? Positioning, interestingly, it's a super old concept. And yet, if you ask five different people how to define positioning, you will literally give five different answers. It's, it's hilarious to me that positioning as a concept has a positioning problem. It's ridiculous. So in my early thinking about positioning, um, The concept was defined in the 1980s by these guys, Rise and Trout. They wrote a book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. And in it, they they attempted to define positioning. And the the book is essentially a book-length definition of here's what positioning (laughs) is, which, you know, I don't think your podcast listeners want to hear that. But in my mind, I like to think about positioning as a sum of a bunch of components. And specifically, there are five components. So positioning in my mind is a clear definition of one, who your true competitive alternatives are, two, what your key unique differentiators are when compared to those competitive alternatives, three, the value those differentiated features enable for customers, four, a defined segment of potential customers that really care a lot about that value. Uh, And lastly, the definition of the exact market that you intend to win. 
So positioning is actually pretty complicated and it's kind of a set of everything that more or less defines your go-to-market strategy. Yeah, because when we hear the word positioning, we might think of a positioning statement, which is something we're taught in business school, but is positioning, is it really oh about God, a message? Can I rant about the positioning statement for a while? I'm happy. Yeah, to. totally. Is, I hate the-, the positioning statement so much. It's like, it's, like my, it's like my most hated thing. So when I was first in, like when I first started my career in marketing and we'd get to these questions of positioning, people would say, oh, well, we'll just do a positioning statement. And so a positioning statement is like this mad libs fill in the blank thing. Like we are a blank for blank that does blank as opposed to blank. And the blanks are literally those five things, right? Like who's our, who's my competition? What's my differentiator? What's the value? What market am I am? Am I in? But the positioning statement exercise is farcical because you're, you're essentially put, filling in these blanks, but it gives you no clue how to actually come up with the answers to fill them in. So it tricks you into thinking, well, these things are obvious. Obviously, we're in the most obvious market we could be in because it just says fill in the blank. And then I'm just supposed to fill these blanks in and then memorize this gobbledygook Franken statement, right? We're a blank for blank for blank. Like the one that you learn in marketing school is the original Amazon positioning statement. And it's like two paragraphs long. (laughs) It's ridiculous. No one's ever going to use this thing. And the important piece of it, like what market are we actually in? I could take almost any product and position it in five different markets. So how do you know which one? And the positioning statement exercise basically says, pick the most obvious one. What are our key differentiators? Oh, all I have to do to figure that out is just write it down. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> How do you know? And so the, the, I think that the positioning statement is not only a stupid exercise to do, but it's potentially harmful because it leads you into thinking, well, you don't know this. You must be a dummy. So it's just obvious. Just write down the most obvious thing and get this thing done, people. When in fact, these are probably some of the most important decisions you can make for your entire business strategy. And it treats it like you're born knowing this stuff, like you're born knowing who your competitive alternatives are. Even that, that's really hard to know. And if you think you know it, you're often wrong. And so this positioning statement thing drives me batty. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll stop <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I can see you super passionate about, about that. And uh, I think, Following on from that point, especially in SaaS, it seems when you speak to people, whether they're CEOs, investors, board members about marketing in particular, everyone's obsessed with things like lead gen and performance marketing and instant results. But people seldom actually talk about positioning, which, as you mentioned earlier, it's been around for a long time, the early 80s when Reese and Trout wrote the, the book. Uh, positioning the battle for your mind. But if we think about the state of SaaS in particular right now and where we are today, why is positioning so important and why is it so dangerous to overlook it? Right. Well, there's there's kind of two big reasons, but they, they kind of stem from the same thing. So the first thing you have to understand is that our markets are incredibly crowded, like so crowded. We say this as marketers all the time, like to the point where it's almost a cliche. Markets are crowded. Customers are overwhelmed with choices. 
But the reality is they are insanely crowded, insanely crowded. Like the example I like to give is um, if you look at Scott Brinkler does this thing called the marketing technology landscape. And this is like his attempt to, to model one little piece of the software solutions landscape, like just the solutions to solve marketing problems. And if you look at the way that thing has evolved over time, like the first time that he did one, or at least the earliest one I've seen is 2012, and there's 350 companies on that, which sounds like a lot of companies. But if you look at 2018, there are 7,000 companies on that thing, 7,000. Like that's how terrible this is. This is just this little corner of marketing technology, never mind stuff for manufacturers or stuff for salespeople or stuff for you know, accountants and lawyers. Like, so our markets are super, super, super crowded. So our job as marketers, kind of job one, is we need to have customers understand what our solution does and why they should care. And we have like seconds to do that in, in an ocean of alternatives. So this question of why are we different and why anyone should care is super, super, super important. Positioning is kind of the fundamental underpinning of that. So strong positioning helps make why you're special or your awesomeness obvious to the customers that are most likely to buy from you. If you think about lead generation, positioning is the inputs into that, right? Who are we trying to go after? What is the value proposition? What actually makes us special? Why do you want to buy? And so we spend a lot of time on the black box of lead generation and pushing stuff through the pipeline. But the inputs to that are this smart definition of who are we? Why should anyone care? What market do we actually intend to win? And so we don't spend nearly enough time, in my opinion, on the inputs to that stuff, which is the kind of fundamental underpinning. And again, I blame things like the positioning statement, like we're just taught, like, well, we just know that, right? Don't we? Don't we just know that? Like, obviously, our competitors are this. Obviously, we're in this market. But in my experience, almost every company I've worked for and all the products I've launched across my career, we've mucked around with that stuff. And a shift in that stuff is actually what allowed us to unlock a whole bunch of growth. But without thinking about that fundamental stuff, we did never come up with that. Yeah, exactly. I think I totally agree with you there. And following from that, so is your positioning then driven by the situation in the market or is it driven by the needs of your customer? Or is it more complex than that? And are there a combination of factors at play that influence how you should position your company? Yeah, like there's a whole bunch of things and they're all kind of interrelated, which is part of what makes positioning actually kind of complicated to do. So it's even though it's kind of a simple concept to get your head around it, doing it is pretty hard. And so the way I like to think about it is, you have a product out in the market right now and you've got customers that love that product. You probably have a bunch of customers that are just like, yeah, it's okay. But you've got your super fan customers that love you. Um, if you think about your product, you probably have a long, long list of capabilities. 
but only a few of those capabilities are really differentiating. And if you go to the customers that love, love, love you and say, why do you love us so much? They won't talk about a thousand things. They'll talk about two or three things. And figuring out the patterns in what are those two or three things that, that our best customers love us so much for and why do they love that? What's the value that that drives? That's one piece of the puzzle. But the other piece of the puzzle is what is it about these weirdo customers that makes them love that so much? <laughs> like not everybody loves that so much, but these people really love it. And getting underneath, like in your segmentation, thinking about, you know, thinking beyond just what I would call firmographics, like how big the company is and how many employees, how much revenue, what geography they're in, and more getting at what is the situation going on in this company that makes them feel this pain more intensely and therefore our solution is like desperately needed. And that's usually, um, like that could be a combination of anything. It could be the way they go to, go to market. It could be their their particular style of how they do business. It could be the, uh, the infrastructure they already have in place for other software that they use makes them different. And so most companies don't really get under that. Like when you say, well, who do you sell to? They'll say, oh, small, medium business. <laughs> and, and, but when you poke at that, it's not true. Like if you say small, medium business, I, th this happens to me with startups all the time. I'll say, who do you sell to? They say small, medium business. I'll say, okay, like convenience stores. And then they'll look at me like I'm crazy. What? No, no, not convenience stores. Well, okay, how about car dealerships? What? No, not car dealerships. Then the more you ask them, what they actually mean is other software startups. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, that's really different than saying small, medium business. So most of the time, people have it in their head. It's just not coming out in their mouth. And then their marketing team doesn't know. So the marketing teams out there, you know, building this very generic, watered-down set of programs for any old small, medium business, including car dealerships and convenience stores. But, but that's not their segmentation at all. So what you're trying to do is figure out this connection, right? You've got something special. Not everybody loves it. Some people do. Why? And how do we make my specialness obvious to these folks that are most likely to buy? That's the nut of it. And so in order to do that, you have to define all five pieces of positioning, right? Who are my alternatives? What are my different, what's my differentiated value? Who, who's my actual segmentation? What market are we in? tricky, right? It's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's super difficult. And in terms of that specialness, if we think about SaaS, should they be feature or functionality driven or should it be benefit and value driven? Well, it's always got to be benefits and values. Like the only time we can get away with feature function is when the customers know enough about feature function that they do the translation of value in their heads. <laughs> we mess this up in tech a lot because we actually are used to doing a lot of that. We just don't even realize we're doing it. Like, so for example, if you go to buy, like if you look at the way they sell cell phones, right? They'll, they'll tell you how many megapixels are on the camera. That is, that is like a feature, right? And not, but yep. we do the translation to benefit in in our minds because we've been taught that more megapixels is better, right? More megapixels means a sharper a sharper picture. I can zoom in and it still looks good, you know. So we but we do that translation in our heads. Most of the time, your customers are not so educated that if you say, "Hey, we have way more, you know, storage capacity" or something like that. 
the customer will kind of be like, so what? <laughs> and you have to tell them what the so what is about that. They, most of the time, they don't actually care how you do it. Uh, unless, again, they're quite sophisticated customers and they know a lot about it, then sometimes they care about how. But most of the time, they just want to know, what can you do for me? How does this solve my problem? Give me the benefit. I don't really care how you do it. It could be you know, blockchain back there, or it could be sparkle unicorn magic. I don't care. Just as long as you get it done, dude, <laughs> like how much does it cost? But we get tripped up in that just because in a lot of technology, like a lot of technology that we buy, we're sophisticated customers of technology and we do that translation on our own. And so we kind of have to break that cycle. For most of the stuff we sell is software. People don't care how it gets done underneath. And if we try to tell them that they, they don't know anything. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so how then do you actually go about positioning? So if our listeners are planning on bringing a new product to market soon or even want to rethink their current positioning, what steps can they take, say, tomorrow morning or even right after listening to this podcast in order to ensure they're able to arrive at the right positioning for their products? Can you talk us through some steps, a framework or methodology that you can use to figure it out? Yeah, so this has been kind of the thing I've been focused on for the last few years is I've been really kind of obsessed with the idea that here we have this thing that's so fundamental to business. It's so important for all your marketing and sales efforts. It's an old concept. We know what it is. It's been around since before the internet. And yet there doesn't seem to be an agreed upon methodology to actually do it, which blows my mind. And so when I when I started out my career in marketing, I kept looking for this thing and it wasn't there. And then I would go to other senior marketers and say, you must be doing positioning. How do you do it? And every senior marketer, there was commonality in how they were doing it. And they had all kind of made it up as they went along. Like, you know, it was part of the thing that made you a senior marketer was knowing how to do this, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> stupid, right? So you think, okay, there must be a way to actually break this down into pieces and get it done. And so, <clears throat> I have what I think is a methodology that works and I've used it on all the product launches where I was a VP marketing. And then more recently as a consultant, I do this workshop now with customers, generally startups, and we can get it done in a couple of days. And I've done it dozens of times now, so I feel like it works. Um, and so at a super high level, these are the steps. So, Again, if you, you have to start, your starting point should be, I've got a product in market and I have a bunch of customers that really love it. If you don't have that yet, then you're not ready to do positioning because your product probably isn't ready. <laughs> and so I can't position a product that is still in flux and you're figuring it out. And so we can have a whole other conversation about what to do if your product's not launched yet or whatever, but that's different. But assuming you've got a product that's in market and people love it. The starting point really is figuring out what your true competitive alternatives are. So in order to figure out what makes you special, you need to understand the comparison that your customers are actually making. Now in startups, we often get this wrong in that you know, we're super focused on the market and we're raising money and we look at all the other little startups out there and say, oh, we're just like those guys, except a little bit different. And, you know, our solution is very much like these. But from the mind of a customer, they probably don't know any of those little startups. And so the comparison they're making could very likely be, you know, use your solution versus using Excel or using 
Google Docs or hiring an intern, or if it's a really emerging market, they don't even really know they have the problem. So the alternative is do nothing and you know keep just status quo doing what I'm doing now. And so the first thing is to really understand what does a customer compare you to? Once you have that, the next step is to say, okay, we have a whole bunch of capabilities and which of those capabilities are uniquely different from the things that I'm getting compared to. So again, I'll get a lot of startups that'll come and say, oh, we're super easy to use. And you'll say, well, yeah, you know what's really easy to use? Excel. <laughs> Hiring an intern is really super easy. <laughs> and you know, telling the intern to go do it is pretty pretty good um, usability. So you know, you know, if you do the actual comparison and say, what are our unique capabilities? And this could be, and generally in the workshops I do, is a very long list. So there's a whole bunch of things that you've got. And these are kind of like features. And we usually start there because tech people love talking about features. So, you know, it's pretty easy yes. for us to come up with a great big long list of features. These are things that Excel doesn't have. These are things that your intern can't do. <laughs> so we make this big long list. Then the next step is to say, okay, these features enable value for the customer. So why do I care about megapixels? Why do I care about how big the data storage is? So if I take all these things, then I have to translate them into value. And generally what happens at that stage is the value tends to cluster into a handful of themes, usually two or three themes. So, you know, one might be, you know, this allows you to get paid on time, or, you know, this allows you to, uh, you know, save money while you're doing something, whatever your software enables. So what you'll end up doing is doing this sort of mapping, right? And you'll be saying, oh, this feature actually enables this value. So does this one. So does this one. There's this other point of value. And so what you end up with is kind of like two or three buckets of value. And that's kind of what you do. That's, that's the value that you bring to customers that's different and unique. Um, so once you get to that stage, then you can say, okay, this is the value. And then if you think about customers that are in your target market, not everybody cares about that value. So you might say, oh, our value is, um, you know, we do, uh, we can, you know, get your invoices paid faster. Well, and you might say, you know what, we don't have that many invoices, so we don't actually, and, you know, we don't have a problem with them getting paid late, so we don't actually care that you're getting your invoices paid faster. So if you look at, the customers, you have to be able to say, okay, if my value is this, what is it about this customer that makes them care a lot about that? So if you're saying my value is you're going to get your invoices paid faster, um, maybe I only care about that if I have more than a certain number of invoices that I process every month. Or maybe I only care about that if I, you know, I worked with a company where part of what they were doing was um, getting, they could get employees, contract employees paid faster. But it was the same thing. If you didn't have a lot of contract employees, why would you care? You don't. And then you start saying, well, what kind of companies have a lot of contract employees? And then you can start doing a segment, a segmentation around that. So that's kind of the, 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 the fourth piece, which is sort of like, okay, now I know what makes me different. Now I know what my value is. And now I kind of got this idea of these are the people that care a lot about that value. Then I can take a big step back and say, well, if I'm all about getting people paid faster or getting an invoices done faster or, you know, whatever it is your value is, and I want to communicate to these people, then what am I? 
So let's say you did that exercise and you said, you know, we're a CRM tool and we have this special feature. But when I got down to who cares, it turns out the only people that care about that are bankers. Then am I in the CRM business or am I actually just CRM for bankers? And those two things are different, right? If I say I'm in the CRM business, I'm competing with Salesforce. If I say I'm CRM for bankers, then, you know, I'm probably going to have an easier time getting a conversation with a banker. I'm probably not going to bump into Salesforce all that much because what do they do that's special for banking? Nothing. Um, but I've also kind of said, hey, I'm not really interested in customers outside of banking. And so sometimes there's some hard decisions to be made there. But so you got to figure out, so what is the market we're in that we intend to win? So I would only say I'm in the CRM business if I intend to beat Salesforce. Do I really yeah. think I'm going to beat Salesforce? <laughs> if I don't think I'm going to beat Salesforce, then you better be more specific than you're in the CRM business because in reality, you're not, you're not beating Salesforce. So what are you? Your CRM for small businesses or your CRM for banking or your something else. But that's the sort of definition of the market that you intend to win. So that's kind of the flow. You start with alternatives, you get to your differentiator, you get to value, you figure out your segmentation, and then you say, well, if this is my segmentation, I'm trying to communicate this value to these people, how do I set context around my offering that makes that obvious? Yeah, exactly. This is perfect. And I think the CRM example is super good because we've discussed that your positioning is highly dependent on the market you're operating in. And I guess those could be new markets <laughs> expanding markets or established markets. So let's say you're operating in an established and noisy space like CRM, for example, how can yeah. you use positioning to stand out within crowded and consolidated markets? Right. So every startup has this problem, right? So you, you either you're, if you look at the market, there's kind of three ways to position in a market. So one is let's say the market is established and there's a, an established leader in that market. CRM is a great example. Um, you have a few choices. You can either say, um, I'm going to take on the leader head to head. And so if you were to say, I'm in the CRM market, you're essentially declaring war on Salesforce. You're saying, that's it. We're better than them. We're going to beat those guys. We got this. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> Which is insane, right? Like that's like saying, I'm going into the cola market and I'm taking on Coke. And if you're like a little startup, that is just not realistic. And it's not credible. Um, it, there are cases where there is a stepwise weird change in technology that might take an established leader and give them a weakness all of a sudden. Sometimes you'll have things in the regulatory environment, like all of a sudden there's some compliance stuff and the leader has a weakness there that you might be able to attack them. But it's pretty rare that you can move into an established market and take on a leader head on. Like even when I worked at IBM, we wouldn't do that. And we're IBM. <laughs> like, <laughs> even IBM doesn't do that. Like it's really, really hard. So an established market. So, Generally, if you're a startup, a better way to take that on is to say, you know what? Salesforce is awesome. We love those guys. They're amazing, but they're not amazing for everybody. And in fact, if you talk to Salesforce customers, there's a lot of Salesforce customers that aren't super happy. And if you ask them why they're not happy, it's because they got weird problems. So some of them will say, yeah, you know, but our sales process is a little bit different and weird and they don't do that. And you say, yeah, okay. So if you're a startup and you're trying to crack CRM, um, the first thing you got to do is look for a sub segment that's not well served by the leader. 
So that that so you're basically going to subsegment the market, and you're going to say, you know what, I'm a cola. I'm coming into the cola market. I can't take on Coke, but that's okay because I'm Coke for dogs. And you know, and what's cool about that is when I declare that I'm in that market, I'm Coke for dogs. I'm CRM for investment banks. Let's say, then what I'm saying is, I'm saying that there's a subsegment of that market that has special needs and those special needs are not being met by the, the leader in the market. But I get all the benefit of declaring that I'm in that market. I don't have to explain to you what CRM is. Everybody knows what CRM is. So it's pretty easy for you to understand what I am. If I say I'm Coke for dogs, you're like, okay, I get it. It's probably brown. It's probably fizzy. And I don't know, maybe it tastes like bones or something. But, you know, it's like, so you get all the benefit of everybody understands what you do. And then you're saying, okay, but I'm not for everyone. I'm just for this little thing. Now, people are scared of that because they'll say, well, my addressable market seems kind of small if I'm just going after, let's say we're talking about CRM for investment banks. I'm using that as an example because I <laughs> ran marketing at a company that did CRM for investment banks. Okay. <laughs> when we first decided to make that shift and shift away from doing CRM for everybody to CRM for investment banks, it was a terrifying decision to make. Our board wasn't happy our CEO was quite nervous about it because it looked like, oh my gosh, we're only going to sell to investment banks. That's not a very big market. Can we actually make our number doing that? And so you have to make sure that the addressable market in there is big enough to sustain the business. In our case, it seemed like a small market in terms of the number of investment banks, but um, we could put a price premium on what we were selling. So we jacked the price up and though each individual deal was actually quite big. And so our strategy was we would establish ourselves in investment banking and then we would branch out from there. So once we had investment banking, then we would branch out into insurance and retail banking and things that were adjacent. And eventually we were going to take on the leader. And that was our strategy. So those are kind of the two things. So if you've got an established market, you, you can sub-segment it out. Sometimes what you've got is an established market that doesn't have a clear market leader. So this is what you get in a lot of neat emerging markets. So let's say you're doing some super high-tech stuff around, um, you know, something related to blockchain or augmented reality or, you know, there's a bunch of markets there where we kind of understand the market but it isn't clear who the leader is. In those cases, you might wanna take a run at being the leader in that market. And so again, you get the benefit of the fact that the market's kind of established. You can say, oh, you know, we're AI for whatever, or we're augmented reality for manufacturing plants to do whatever. And you'll get the benefit of people saying, yeah, I kind of get what that is. I get what that market is. And then what you're doing is taking a run at being the best in that market. Uh, it's harder to do than going into an established market and saying you're going to win a subsegment of it because not everybody's definition of the market is the same. You're going to do a certain amount of education there. And if the market is sort of established enough that people understand it, by definition, it means it's super competitive. So you'll have a thousand companies in there all vying to be the leader in that market. So you'll need you'll need um, time and investment to move quickly, as quickly as you can to try to establish yourself there. And you'll have to do that in an environment that's very, very competitive. 
as opposed to a, you know, a sub-segment of an established market, you're generally not in as competitive a situation there. The third thing that you get is in startups in particular, the sort of third style of positioning. So the first one is I sub-segment the market and I go after. Second one is, you know, the market's not all that established. I'm going to drive straight at it and try to win it. The third one is my tech is so neat, so new, so out there and crazy and no existing market can hold this at all. And I'm actually going to have to invent a new market to, to put it in. And you hear a lot of talk about this in startup circles where people will talk about inventing a market category or creating a market category. Um, and sometimes when people talk about that, they're not actually creating a market category at all. Like the market category already exists and what they're doing is fighting to be the leader in that category. People talk about it like it's an easy thing or worse than that. They talk about it like you're not a good startup unless you're doing that, which is crazy. So, you know, the one I was talking about where we did CRM for investment bankers, we sold for $1.7 billion. Like, and people told us, oh, that market's too small. You'll never grow. It's like, yeah, no, it actually wasn't a problem at all. <laughs> but people will say, oh, if you want to get big and you want a big exit, the only way you're going to do this is create the market category. Creating market category, the reality of that is very, very, very difficult. The reason it's difficult is because if no existing market category can contain you, by definition, that means that customers don't know they have the problem. Because if they knew they had the problem, then they would be looking for solutions and there would be a solution category out there for them to look at. So if, if nobody's looking for a solution to this thing, it means they don't, have the, they don't know they have the problem. So your first job as a company is to teach people that they have a problem. So at the beginning, you're not even marketing your solution. You're marketing the problem. You're literally in the problem marketing business. And so what you're doing is you come up and you say, hey, you don't know this, but the way you do X is broken. And let me teach you why. And you might stay at that stage where you're just teaching people why they have the problem for years before you actually establish the category and everybody says, yeah, we get it. We all know we got the problem. Now we know we got to fix it. So first you got to market the problem. And then the minute that people understand that they have the problem, then you're in this like other style where the category exists, but there isn't necessarily a market leader there. And all of a sudden, every little startup in Silicon Valley is piling into this market trying to beat you. <laughs> so you did all the work establishing the category, but now you have to do the work of making sure that everybody understands you're the leader in the category. And so sometimes what happens is the, the company that established the category gets completely wiped out by a fast follower that just zooms in at the last minute, does it better than them, takes advantage of all their work to create the category, and then comes in and just like slays the category and then you go out of business. So creating, now that said, if you are the person that creates the category and you do it smartly, it should be difficult for someone else to come in and dominate it because you should be thinking about, you know, why is it that I'm the only solution that can really take on this category? So what have we got that's, patented, that's special, that can't be copied. Um, if you do that well, then it's hard for other people to come in. But it, it's really difficult to do this category creation. So those are kind of the three things. Um, yeah, you're either running right out of market that already exists that doesn't have a leader, 
or you're running out of market that's mature, but you're going to carve off a piece of it and make a good business there and then expand out. Um, or you're going to attempt to create a new market because what you've got is really amazing and different. But, you know, you got to make sure you have patient investors and a lot of runway to get that done. Yeah, this is super good. And I think that third and final situation sounded very familiar to what Malcolm Gladwell was talking about in his book. Being the first is not necessarily always the best no. thing. So could you say then, if you're operating in a new market or new category, then focus on the problem. Whereas if you're operating in a crowded, consolidated existing market or category, then focus on a segment and your key differentiators. Yeah, that's kind of it. Like you need to assess how much the, the, your target segment understands that they have the problem. So if they don't understand they have the problem, then you got to fix that first. <laughs> if they do understand they have a problem, great, then you can tell them a solution, right? Exactly. Then, then your job is to say, oh, okay, you get you have the problem, you want a solution. Now I've got now I'm marketing my stuff and saying, well, you you should pick my solution for these reasons, right? Oh, you're an investment bank. Well, my thing's special for investment banks. That's why you should pick it. So, you know, that's kind of the way it works. Like either people get they have the problem or they don't. If you have a choice, it's generally way, way easier to sell to people that already know they have the problem. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like if given the choice, that's who you want to sell to. And that's the way most markets work. But again, if you want to do this category creation thing, it's not impossible. You can do it, um, but it's a big bet. Yeah, definitely. So who then owns positioning? Which team or group of people are typically responsible for positioning within a SaaS company or does it encompass the entire organization? Oh, this is a great question. I get asked this a lot. I'll tell you, I, so as the head of marketing, um, you know, when I look back at my career and I was kind of like a repeat VP of marketing at a series of like seven startups. And so I ended up driving or spearheading the work to shift the positioning. But the only reason I ended up doing that was because I was on the front line of feeling the pain of our weak positioning. <laughs> so if I look at who's responsible for setting the positioning, that is a really executive team decision because generally a shift in positioning is actually a shift in business strategy. So if I look back at like my example of the CRM where we were CRM for enterprises and then we shifted to CRM for investment banks, like marketing ain't going to make that decision <laughs> without <laughs> the whole, whole executive team and the board probably saying, yeah, we're okay with this. So, but it may be marketing that sees the problem and puts their hand up and says, you know what? I think our positioning sucks. So the reason marketing sees the problem first is you see it in the weakness of your marketing efforts. So in my case, I'm out there trying to market against a gorilla in the market who's super well established that basically owns that market and I can't drive any leads. And so I'm trying, I'm out there trying to say, Hey, we're better enterprise CRM than the other guys. And it's kind of not true. And I'm struggling to come up with differentiators that matter to use in my campaigns to try to draw people in. And so when I come back, you know, so then I go back to, you know, as the marketing person, I'm like, well, who really cares? Maybe I need to go fishing in another pond. And in our case, what that boiled down to was, you know what? Nobody actually really cares about, we had a couple of cool differentiated features, but it turned out nobody really cared about it except investment bankers. And so it was me sort of coming back and saying, you know what, I think maybe we need to just fish here. 
But it was, you know, I could put up my hand and say, I think it's weak and I've got a theory about it. But the whole team needs to be on board to shift it. But often it's the head of marketing that ends up spearheading that shifting because they feel the pain most intensely first or, you know, head of sales. Sometimes it's the head of sales that says, look, we, we can't win deals like this. We need to shift the way we're pitching this stuff or we need to shift who we're focused on when we're out there pitching. But my, my, my experience is it's usually the VP marketing that puts up their hand and says, we need to shift in positioning. But in order to actually make it happen, the whole executive team needs to buy into it. In the work I do now as a consultant, I generally get brought in by the founders if it's a startup. And, but when I dig at you know, what made them decide that they had a positioning problem that they called me in the first place, it's usually the head of marketing putting up their hand and saying, you know what, everything we're doing here stinks and it's not because I'm a lousy marketer. <laughs> it's because we don't actually have super clear definition on why we're better and who we're better for. Um, and then what I do as a consultant, it's interesting. It's sometimes, not always, like, a lot, like when I was a VP, we did this stuff internally on our own, but sometimes it's super helpful to get an outside person to help facilitate that conversation because you're going to have some fights about it. Like it's a big change to shift from one market to another market or say, Oh, we're, you know, we were saying this was our key differentiator, but it's actually this people are going to have strong opinions about that. And it's often hard to have that discussion at the executive team level. If you know, some of the people are the founding team and some of the people are brand new employees that are worried about getting fired. <laughs> maybe don't have the right political clout. Sometimes it's good to bring an outside person in to facilitate that conversation so that everybody kind of feels safe voicing their opinions, you know, without risk of uh, repercussions later. So it's an interesting process. But again, I don't think, again, I don't think marketing can own that. Like it has to be an executive team decision, but marketing can certainly spearhead it. And marketing is often the person that sees the problem first. Yeah, and I think this comes back quite nicely to what we were speaking about at the start of the episode in that positioning is the input required for successful lead gen, demand gen, getting those results that are expected of you. And like I said, as a marketing team, you're on the front line. You can probably see that first when you're looking at your results and looking at your final right. numbers. And then the sales team shortly after when they're discussing with actual prospects, they can sense are we in the right position here or is something not quite right? So yeah, this is super, super good to get your insights on that. And over the course of your career, you mentioned that you've been working in many different startups and you have launched, I believe, is it 16 products to market? Yeah, that's my, that's my number. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> can can uh, you share some stories of real life positioning challenges that you faced and how did you actually solve them? Yeah. So it's interesting because I went back and they added them up. Like how many products did we launch? Uh, if I look across uh, seven startups and then of those seven startups, six of them got acquired. And so in almost every case, I went to work at the big company that acquired us. And then we launched some stuff while we were there. So some of those were um, big established products. Some of those were brand new things and brand new markets. But what's interesting, the commonality across all of it was we did a repositioning at some point because we decided that our positioning was weak. And so it's interesting when you look back at it, it the, the starting point was always the same. Like we'd be having a, 
kind of an internal conversation about who should we target? Who should we go after? Is that really who we're going after? Or we'd be having a conversation around what the heck is this thing anyway? So I'll give you an example I use a lot, which was a, a company early in my career. And I got hired as the VP marketing, but the, the founders of this thing were these PhDs in database science. And they had this stuff was super sophisticated and they had a bunch of patents on it. And what they invented was a new kind of database. And what this database could do is if you had a mountain of data, um, they could do an analytic query on that data super, super fast. So they had built it originally for a big bank here in Canada that had this terabytes of data and they had this query that, that was so big they had to run it overnight and they invented this database and it could do the query in like two minutes. And so it was like magic. So they formed the company around it and they're going to sell this new database thing. And when I came on board, they had a handful of customers, um, but it wasn't, they were having a really hard time doing lead generation. And so what I realized when I came on board is, um, you know, we, we built this thing and it was a database. It has clearly differentiated. It had this clear value proposition to customers and yet they didn't seem to care. And so, you know, we'd, we'd market this stuff and my marketing was terrible. Like I wasn't generating any leads and I could not figure it out. And I was like, I, and I came from databases, like I got it. And I was like, I don't understand why people aren't going crazy over this database. It's amazing. So what I ended, what ended up happening is I ended up going out on a bunch of sales calls with my VP sales to see what was happening in the sales calls. And this light came on, like it was terrible. Like we basically, we spent a week out on the road doing face-to-face -face sales meetings and we did a whole bunch of them. And every single sales meeting was the same. We'd come in and the, the head of IT or the head of databases would come in and there'd probably be a room full of database administrators. And we'd get up and we'd say, hey, we've got this fantastic new database. And the minute you said that word, database, everybody in the room was kind of like, oh God, database. Like you could just see them. They're picking up their phone. They're doing their Facebooking. We lost them. And, and then my sales VP would say, no, 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 you don't understand. We're a special database. We're a very, very special database. We have PhDs and patents and all the P things. And, and, and everybody, and finally what would happen is that we get to like slide three senior person in the room would put their hand up and say, yeah, it's great. We, we like that. But you know what we don't need? We don't need a database. We've got Oracle. We're an Oracle shop. Everyone's trained on Oracle and we all do Oracle. And yeah, I get that you can do this analytic query thing, whatever, that's okay. But we use a database for all kinds of things and we're not switching off Oracle. We're not adding another platform. Get the hell out. And they kick us out. And we never, we never got to the demo stage. Like we didn't even get halfway through the deck. And so it was clear that we had a problem with the categorization. Like the minute we said database, everybody was like, nope, don't want that. And we didn't get a chance to actually pitch why we were cool. And so in that case, we actually got lucky in that we did a pitch for a guy who was like a friend of the company. He was like a friend of the CEOs and he agreed to give us an hour just to be a nice guy. And we went in and we did the whole pitch because he's being polite. And when he got to the end of it, he's like, oh my God, I love it. It's so fantastic. I love what you're doing. And we're like, wow, like, why does this guy love it? No, everybody else walks out after slide three. And he says, you know what? Like at the beginning, I didn't know what you were. I couldn't figure it out. But then about halfway through, I realized that, that you're not a database at all. And we're like, what the hell? How can we not be a database? We're, we're built by database guys. It's a database. It can't be anything else. 
And the guy's like, you don't get it. Databases do all kinds of things. Analytics, just one little piece of that. So if I'm looking for a solution to analytics, I don't buy a database. I buy a business intelligence tool. Maybe I buy a data warehouse. You're that. You're not a database. And it had never occurred to us, you know, going back to my rant about the positioning statement. <laughs> like if I did a positioning statement for this thing, I would say, we're a database that does analytics really fast, whatever. But it, in the minds of customers, that's not what we were. And saying we were a database was like saying, we're going into the database market and we're going to beat Oracle, which clearly we're not going to do. <laughs> And we never stepped back and said, you know what? We can't take on the whole database market. We can only take on a piece of it. And so what is that piece? Or maybe we're not in the database market at all. Maybe we're a business intelligence tool. Maybe we're a data warehouse. And so, again, these things are super fundamental to the business. And so we went back and had a big fight as an executive team and ended up doing a shift to say, we were a data warehouse, which at that point was an emerging market. The market existed, but there was no clear leader. So we had an opportunity to come in there and be the leader of that market. And that shift changed everything, right? I never got compared to Oracle again. I, I never had people get up and walk out. People knew what a data warehouse was. Nobody had one. They kind of had a thought maybe they should have one. I go back to the exact same customers pitching the exact same, the exact same product and say, hey, what we have is this really fancy data warehouse. And everybody would go, hmm, tell me more. <laughs> As opposed to get the hell out. We don't need one of those. And so that creating the context around it so that people understand and my value is right in the middle of that market as opposed to being something ancillary to the market, super, super, super important. But that story, like I could tell a story about that in every single product I launched where we'd launch it, we'd get it out there and we're like, you know what, something's wrong here. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's just not working. And the smarter we got about customers and what was different about us and how customers looked at us and how could we really set context around that thing, we'd end up saying, ah, we're not actually in this market, we're in another market, or ah, we're not this for everybody, we're just this for a sub-segment. Um, every single product, we had that at some point. Yeah, that's amazing. And April, you're also launching a book next year all about positioning called Obviously Awesome. So yeah. why did you decide to write this book? And can you give us a sneak peek about what we can expect yeah. So the book is, so here's why I decided to write the book. So I got super obsessed with this idea of like, how do you actually do positioning? And then my mind is all blown that there isn't a, an accepted methodology to do positioning. So I decide I'm going to fix that. So then I get my own methodology. I go out there and now I'm quite confident I can fix this. If you've got a positioning problem, I know how to solve it, but not everybody, uh, has access to me. Like I'm just a person. I, I'm a consultant. I don't even run a company of consultants. I'm just me. So, you know, if I don't have time or if you can't afford me, then what I want to do is I want to point you at something that teaches you how to do it so you can do it yourself. And so that's what the idea of the book is. It's like, I'm going to write this book that after you read Reason Trout and you read Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, I'm the book that you're going to buy, that you're going to say, yeah, okay, this is how I'm actually going to do it. So that's the idea. 
writing this book has been torture. It's been terrible. <laughs> I, never did I think this would be so awful in a million years. I will never write another book again. But it, well, maybe I will now that I know how bad it is, I'll do it differently. But um, so I'm in the middle of edits for this thing right now. And the editing process is super painful because I have this super clear vision of what this thing should be and what it should say. But I'm an engineer and I actually write like crap. And so I have this editor that, you know, and her and I are having this terrible wrestling match where I feel like she's taking all the meaning out of my work and she feels like my work is 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 indecipherable <laughs> and so we're doing this thing so I hope that the book that comes out of this is uh both meaningful and decipherable um when it comes out but right now the goal is to have it out around March April um hopefully hopefully the date doesn't slip but I've been working on this thing for ages I'll be so happy when it's out it's yeah. like my gift. To, it's like my gift to the universe. That's it. Don't call me. Just read this book. Go on. Do your own thing. If you need a little outside, you know, moderation, I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. It sounds awesome. So spring next year. And I think you touched on the positioning maybe for your own book, the unofficial sequel to positioning the battle. Yeah, it's Mind. a bit like that. Like if you, you know, if you, if you, are convinced you got a positioning problem you know you know you got the problem but now you need to figure out how to solve it this is where you go great stuff uh this is perfect april so i think what we could do now is move to our closing questions and the fast five challenge so all i'm going to do before we wrap up is ask you five questions and you just need to answer as quickly as possible so april okay. are you ready oh i'm super ready sure Okay, great. So what is the one book that you would recommend others to read? So when people ask me books they should read, like if they ask me about books on positioning, I always tell them to go read Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, but I give them this caveat, which is it's going to drive you crazy. You're going to read it and you'll get the positioning religion and then you'll be like, but wait, I, what do I do now? <laughs> and then you'll come back to me all angry. I, the book I recommend more than anything else is Four Steps the Epiphany by Steve Blank. I really think the concept of customer discovery is poorly understood. And this was kind of the book that uh, Lean Startup was based on in a lot of ways. And one of the things that didn't make the transition over to Lean Startup was the customer discovery piece. And so if you really want to know how to a lot of this positioning stuff requires you to really understand customers and how they think and who they compare you to and how they see your value. And the customer discovery section in Four Steps the Epiphany is excellent in my opinion. So that's the one I recommend more than anything else. Great. Then the second question, a SaaS company you love and why? Yeah, so, you know, I, I was thinking about this one and um, th this is a little bit self-serving, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna name two and they just happen to be two that I'm doing some work with right now. So there's, there's one where I sit on the board um, and they're called Sampler. And the other one uh, I'm doing some work with right now and they're called Level Jump. And they have a lot in common, even though they're in completely different markets, but they're my kind of company. You know what I like? I like SaaS businesses that are B2B, that are super, super focused on a very specific problem that is a real problem that nobody has figured out how to solve it properly. And so in both of these cases, like in the case of Sampler, they're solving the problem of how to do product sampling 
um, in an age where consumer packaged goods brands need to understand their customers better. And so instead of just having a person hand out samples of cereal on a street corner, <laughs> you actually want to find out who took my sample, who cares, what are these people like, what do they do? And Sampler solves that problem for big, big consumer packaged goods brand. Level Jump is a completely different thing in that they do this... Um, um, sales enablement solution for super fast growing tech companies, basically. So if you're hiring a lot of salespeople and you need to get a lot of salespeople up to speed really quickly, and that matters because you need to heap, have them hitting quota fast, you need to be the, have them closing deals fast. Um, Level jumps like the only solution out there that you, where you can actually look at your training data and you can have it like mapped into your Salesforce deal data. And that's kind of a revolutionary way of thinking about that. Nobody else can do it. But I like both those companies because they're up my alley. I really like these super specific B2B in a specific market, solving a real problem in a really different, clearly differentiated way. These are my favorite kind of SaaS businesses. Okay, love it. So Sampler and Level Jump, go check yeah. them out. So great. <laughs> Third question, your favorite place to read about marketing online. Um, yeah, that, that's a harder one. You know, I it used is. to read more, I used to read more like sort of aggregator sites and then the aggregator sites either got terrible or overrun with marketers is a, is a problem with a lot of the sites I used to read. There's too much marketing and not enough good stuff. Um, so I did this thing, uh, with Twitter a while back where I super curated a Twitter list of people that I think that share really good stuff. And I use that as my aggregator. <laughs> so I go on Twitter and I have this list and I have all these people. Um, the only one that I think is becoming super interesting is Rand Fishkin's thing, um, SparkToro. One of his free tools is this thing called SparkToro Trending. And my only complaint about it is that because it's Rand, I think it, it, it initially got adopted by a lot of SEOs and it, it in the, the list of what's trending on this group of people, like things that they're sharing, tilts a little too much SEO, but I think eventually that will work itself out. So if you're listening to this and you're a marketer, you should go in there and connect to that SparkToro thing so that it looks better for the rest of us and maybe a little less <laughs> SEO. -y. But I like that. It kind of curates a list of like top 20 articles that people are sharing today. So it does it on a daily basis. And it's super interesting to look on there. So I've discovered some cool stuff there. I kind of like that one. And coincidentally, that's exactly what we were talking about during our previous episode, which was with Rand Fishkin himself. And we were talking about- Oh, isn't about that funny? Toro Trending. So there you go. Go yeah. check it out. Oh, I like it. I, I'm a fan. Yeah. The podcast comes full circle once again. So Hilarious. fourth question, most important growth metric. Um, yeah, like because, you know, for me as a, as a B2B marketer, I'm always really concerned with, are we actually- targeting the right people and is our message resonating with the right people? Meaning, am I doing a good job of clearly articulating why we're amazing to the people that get that we're amazing or, or that need the amazing stuff that we have? And the only, the, the best indicator of that from a metric standpoint is pipeline velocity. Like how fast does stuff move through the pipeline? Because if you're talking to the right people, they get it. Like that's, it, it, you don't have to spend a lot of time marketing to them. You don't have to spend a lot of time selling them or closing them or convincing them. 
And so part of how you know you're really knocking this out of the park is your velocity on the pipeline's pretty fast. And so how you know you're not is you'll get these people that come into the pipeline because they think you do one thing and then when they realize you don't do that, they drop out or they get stuck or, you know, or they come into the pipeline and they're like, we need to have another meeting and what do you guys are getting? And you know, what are you, why would we buy this? How are you different from Salesforce? You know, and you'll see this friction, mid funnel friction when your positioning is crappy, you see that a lot. Um, and the other thing that's, that is super important is churn because sometimes if, if your, um, if your sales model is not particularly complex, you can do a good job of like kind of faking your way through it and getting these deals closed. But then people, you know, get the product and start using you. Wait a second. This isn't what I need. Wait a second. This doesn't do what you said it was going to do. And then they turn out on you. And so churn's super important. So I it's the combination of those two things in my mind tells you whether or not you're really hitting it on your definition of this is who we are and this is who we're going after. Great. And then the fifth and final question, your best piece of advice for fellow SaaS marketers. Yeah. So my, my, here's my best piece of advice. And I say this all the time is when I was early in my career, I was really, really focused on tactics. Like I was really concerned about being tactically excellent. Like, so if I'm going to run a marketing campaign, oh God, it is going to be like a case study of best practices on how to do email or how to do SEO or how to do whatever. I was really, really hyper concerned with tactical execution because I thought that was the most important thing. And then the more experience I got, um, the more I realized that perfect tactical execution with terrible inputs gives you terrible results. So even though you're doing the email campaign perfectly or doing the thing perfectly, um, you're not reaching the right people. You're not, your value proposition is weak. Your differentiators are weak. Therefore your results are bad. And so I wish that earlier in my career, I had spent more time worrying about the bigger picture and asking the bigger questions. Like, is this really our value proposition? Are these really the people we're going after? Is that specific enough um, you know, we say we're a database. Are we really a database? Like, I wish I had spent more time asking those bigger questions earlier in my career and less time worried about tactical execution because it, not that tactical execution isn't important. It's just easy, right? It's easy to learn. Like, especially now, there's, you can look up a thousand, you know, ultimate guide to doing Google ads or something. Like, Tactical execution is easy to learn. The hard part in marketing is the bigger stuff, right? Like, are we targeting the right people? Is this really why people buy our product? All that stuff. Um, I wish I had spent more time thinking about that earlier. So that's my advice. Yeah, love it. And this all comes back to positioning as well. So, hey, April, I have to say thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to talk about positioning. It's been an absolute blast and an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Cool. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great. That was April Dunford on positioning and how to stand out in crowded markets. So make sure you give April a shout out on Twitter. You can follow her at April Dunford and do let us know what you thought of the episode. 
If you have any other thoughts or feedback, then you can always reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward, on LinkedIn or via email at edward at advancedb2b.fi. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off. And make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are Biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are.